Thank you very much for joining us. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge that the land we meet on today is the traditional lands of the Ghana people. We pay our respects to Aboriginal elders past, present and emerging. We're very fortunate today to be joined by Tom Borges, whose work is currently on display as part of the Futures Plus Ruins exhibition in Adelaide Central Gallery. Um, and we, uh, Tom will be in conversation with Athanasios Lazarou, uh, who is an architectural educator and commentator. He teaches across the design studio and representation curricula as a lecturer at the University of Adelaide, where he's also is finishing his PhD on the relationships between politics and space during the Greek economic crisis. His writings appeared in numerous spaces, including Architecture AU and the Monthly Review. So please join me in welcoming both our speakers today, and I will hand over to them. Thank you for that, and uh, welcome, Tom. Good to see you, as always. Um, so, looking at your work uh, that's currently on show in the gallery downstairs, one of the words that comes to my mind is movement. Um, a lot of your work really organises these hard-edged, brightly coloured, linear forms in these very, I think, fast vectors, um, vectors that are almost reorganising the space around them. In addition to that, there's these expanding topographies of rhythm and space. Sometimes there's objects scattered in space and objects gathered and clustered in space. And often there's objects either recording movement over time, responding to movement, or being moved themselves by performance. Um, I also think there's a really interesting movement in your process between the analog and the digital. And I kind of wanted to start with this idea of movement, because I think movement also emerges in your own creative practice. And it's something that I think um, is one of the reasons we get along, is because we have this shared... Um, shared movement between our own practices that has oscillated between education and practice with a little bit of graphic design in between, but in different directions. So perhaps you could start to tell us a little bit about your own art journey and how you've landed at practice. Um, yeah, so I guess it depends how far you want to go back, but I think like it was one of those things that growing up as a kid, I guess I was validated in terms of the creative things that I did pretty early on which I think mainly was at school and I remember having a cousin that was like really good at drawing where you could say can you draw this and off he'd go and come back and you kind of was a little bit blown away by what he was able to do in terms of creating images of things um and then the other thing I talk about quite often is um I love playing with lego growing up and particularly like technic lego and so there was this kind of thing that I love and I still uh, I, th I think there's a real strong relationship in my practice between images and objects. And, and so looking at a plan, these images of what you wanted to build um, and then using things to put together to create and kind of match up with this kind of image thing, that was a pretty massive thing. So, um, yeah, so going through, like, high school, then I really enjoyed art and was really conscious of doing something that I was passionate about and enjoyed. Um, but I came from a pretty conservative family and so... When I applied to go to art school, um, and this was back in the day when back in the day when Underdale was um, the art school for UniSA, um, and I got into visual arts. You had to do like an, a full exam, a practical exam, then a portfolio. It was quite a lot of work to like apply and get in. Um, and I got into the visual arts degree, which was my first preference. But um, my parents were pretty much like, "No, nah, you can't do that because art isn't a job." Um, mm -hmm. And my dad was a teacher, so I was like, well, art teacher, maybe 
what about that? And I kind of, so I applied, that was the second thing I think I applied for, my second preference, and I got into that. But it was awesome because it was like, at that point, it was a four-year degree where you did education kind of scattered amongst a visual arts degree. So it was like a four-year visual arts degree, essentially, with some education subjects. Um, and I absolutely loved it, but I was kind of, I was very young, um, but nevertheless came out of uni, got a teaching job, did that for about six years, but then just wanted to explore a whole lot of other things, including graphic design stuff. So that was something that I did for a while alongside of DJing, which was another thing that I guess those two things paired up were what sort of paid the bills for me for a good amount of time. There's a bunch of travel thrown in there. And then eventually I went back and studied sculpture, having not really, I, I guess, played around with a lot of 2D stuff. Um, and I wanted to be a bit more spatial in what I did. Um, so I went back to uni at AC Arts and then did honours at UniSA. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting because it was a big sort of circle, like from kind of having an aspiration, I guess, of being a visual artist and wanting to do that as a career um, and feeling really drawn towards that, especially as, as a kind of... Um, as a pathway that can kind of incorporate so many different sorts of things that had a lot of appeal to me that, you know, discovering the visual art didn't have to be painting or drawing or sculpture uh, formally that you could bring a whole lot of other things into that. You know, even things like DJing, like that's always been something that's interested me. You know, how, how does DJing relate to my visual arts practice? And, you know, I, they feel all the same kind of thing, which feels really nice. So, yeah, a long way of getting to kind of where I'm at now. Um, but also I love that I deal with those other things and the kind of skill sets that it sort of equipped me with. That's great. I actually think, I mean, Lego is uh, fantastic. It was my mm. introduction to doing anything creative as well, yeah, which is always yeah. nice. Yeah. Um, I mean, surely there's a bit of similarity with, with DJing and a lot of your art at the yeah. same time as well. Not so much in the technical, but I do think they're fairly public things as well. Mm, and yes. telling, your, telling your family story, I do find it interesting not only... Um, perhaps trying to impress your father in that regard, but now the public looks at all your work. Yes. And a lot of them are yeah. public sculptures at the same time as well. Yeah, so could true. you talk a bit about the role the public plays mm. uh, in relation to your practice? Yeah. Um, I think I talk about both things, DJing and, and my art practice. Um, I think a big thing that links them, which is definitely um, kind of deals with this notion of the public, is, is this idea of feedback loops. So the idea that, that um, I'm creating something that goes out into the world and there's some sort of um, feedback or response that kind of occurs when this thing that I guess essentially, if you want to look at it in terms of um, what it is on a really basic level, like I think when we make art, you, you literally are kind of... Um, bringing something of yourself out into the world and kind of putting it out into the world. And so the response to that is something that's always been a really motivational kind of part of my practice. Um, and DJing is exactly the same thing. You, you kind of... It's very like, live. Absolutely. You're engaging with a group of people through a medium. Um, DJing I love, and, and again, this is a huge part of my practice, I like short feedback loops. Um, DJing is a thing that has incredibly short feedback loops, but there's sort of layers of that also that um, kind of simultaneously occur. So I, I guess to give an example, like if, if I'm playing in a club 
where maybe I'm a resident DJ there, then when I play a song, people respond to that and they dance or or not, or go get a drink or nod their head or whatever their kind of response is. Um, that's something that I'm sort of observing and respond to accordingly. But then on another level, kind of, I guess, being, say, you've got a whole night to kind of build a dance floor over, the, over a period of maybe two or three hours. Um, and so there's a longer sort of game that's happening there. But then even on top of that, I think, you know, as a DJ, people become aware of who you are. And so if I'm a resident at the club, then they're going to expect certain music is going to happen there. And I respond to that. And I think about shaping that. Like these, these levels and kind of layers of feedback loops are something that hmm. when I'm making things, all that still exists for me as well. Yeah. I think uh, a lot of the visual appearance of your work makes a lot more sense when you unpack your mm. approach to DJing at the same time. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, uh, it's a slight tease, but I think it's true. But um, yeah. I think that question of short feedback loops is really interesting. Um, as I said at the introduction, a lot of your work oscillates between the analog and the digital. Mm. That question of short feedback loops, is that perhaps one of the reasons why that you preference model making so much in your practice? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting to see yeah, what sort of media I am sort of have been drawn to through my practice and how that's evolved because it relates to those feedback loops. And I think, um, you know, model making is is essentially like they're, they're kind of sculptural sketches for me. And um, I mean, you would have seen in my studio, having done a studio visit, like I have just like scores of tiny little models that, that kind of never, they're not necessarily specific maquettes for larger things, but they're just a way of working through thinking about things in space that's cheap and quick and totally you can quite flip things over. So even things like um, using things like concrete, I use a mix of concrete that's actually partly dental, dental plaster, half dental plaster, half quick set concrete um, because that sets in about 15 minutes. And so I can cast something and like go get a coffee and come back and, and you know, smash out like five or six of them and really sort of see something develop quite quickly. So, um, yeah, and I guess then the, the other part of that kind of network of, of, of working at a kind of achievable scale in terms of feedback loops is using um, 3D software, which again, um, I guess, moves or sort of straddles that thing between 3D and 2D stuff where you're definitely creating an image because it's on a screen and it's 2D, but also you can get amongst it and move around and kind of, you know, look around it and underneath it and um, really get a sense of how that might come to exist in kind of a physical space as well. I think those different scales of those feedback loops are really interesting. Model making, I think it's instant. You kind of feel mm. it in your hands. Mm. Um, then at the same time on the computer, I feel like you're uh, not limited by any possible combination, mm. but at the same time you can kind of design that in a way that uh, the feedback loops can be um, very precise and mm. very quick at the same mm. time too. And I think even like just to make the point that Feedback loops, for me, I consider that not just being to them in terms of being between me and an audience. Feedback loops also, I'm engaging in loops between media and mm -hmm. and like um, ideas. Yeah, ideas. Um, like even something as simple as the physicality of material. Like there's they have certain limitations that I can push or, um, and so it's interesting to kind of work amongst that ensemble of of different things feeding back into what I'm doing which include an audience or putting things on Instagram or um, what I see on the screen. Um, yeah, as a whole, it's quite a complex mm -hmm. 
measure stuff. Yeah, I think that's I think that's quite interesting. I might expand that question of, of short feedback loops to towards long feedback loops. Mm-hmm. And I think anyone that's visited Tom's studio or his house knows that he doesn't just curate all the little objects and experiments in his studio, but you're also a really interesting curator of pages. And you really collect a lot of books, mm-hmm. and a lot of those books, I think, coincidentally look like objects. Mm, yeah, um, sure. But they do start to inform your practice. And I know, for example, in those feedback loops, uh, the work of Keller Easterling and Timothy Morton starts to introduce itself as well. Um, perhaps talk about them. Yeah, it's it's. Um, I think it was probably during honors that I had I started to focus like like given the fact that honors is always this more sort of, uh, I guess it's, it's a space of kind of quite open investigation in terms of ideas, but also materials and, and practice. And, you know, even compared to, say, third year um, at art school, you still have subjects where you have to sort of achieve certain things and, you know, there's assessment stuff, whereas that kind of, um, yeah, I guess self-generated sort of practice, it's, it's a really nice chance to do that. And that was one of the first times that, you know, given the written sort of component that it sort of required that I get a bit deeper into sort of reading stuff. Um, and it was in honours I developed a really nice kind of um, rhythm of, of like having the morning where I have a coffee and <laughs> kind of read and really focus on that um, as a priority and give that like a significant amount of space. And that's something I still as much as possible prioritised now is, is having that space. And so I guess in creating that space, that space is filled with, with books and, and I'm always aware of and, and kind of, um, yeah, quite sort of studious in looking at different publishers and, and sort of thinking about the things I'm interested in, where do they sit um, and, and where might I find them. Um, but, yeah, it's... Uh, yeah, I think in honours as well, I started to realise... Initially, it was this kind of thought, I'm going to research and then I need to make things about my research. Whereas honours, it took me a little while to get there, but by the end, I realised that kind of um, this research aspect and reading and giving space for that, um, those things always permeate what you make. You don't, They don't need to be iterative. You don't need to put... You don't really need to put kind of effort into making sure that the things you make are about the things you've been researching. Um, and so I'm pretty, uh, I, yeah, I guess I have a real comfort around following kind of different trajectories of, of research, if you want to call it that, reading, um, and then just letting that sit and then sort of being reflective in terms of looking at the things that I make. Like, I guess that's another thing that's important. I don't really reflect on what I'm making while I'm making other than kind of responding to kind of what's happening in front of me. It's really letting those things sit and hence having a studio full of all these different things where it sort of gives time and space to sort of reflect on them. And that's often where these things I'm reading that are of interest to me, um, I start to realise how they've kind of informed and are kind of, I guess, channeled through these sort of things that I make. So, yeah, and that stuff's quite broad. Um, Yeah, definitely... A lot of writing on architecture. I mean, Kelly Sling writes a lot about um, infrastructure and, um, I guess, in some senses, urban planning. But it's quite—it's almost kind of on the edge of being quite philosophical in terms of how she looks at things. Timothy Morton is very similar um, in terms of him. He writes a lot about ecologies uh, 
in a very philosophical way, which is, yeah, quite nice to kind of, again, sort of uh, just sit sit in those ideas. Mm-hmm. And, and um, yeah, it's very interesting just to see how they sort of bubble up into what I do and the way that they sort of reveal themselves, yeah. I always think it's interesting how aspects of the practice emerge in the work. And I really mm. like the description of reading as a form of work or mm. part of that process. Uh, I really think it, 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 looking at your work, um, it does, I think for me, read like it's in conversation with some of those thinkers, mm. Easterlin and uh, Timothy Morton. Mm. I think your work is quite conspicuous, right? Mm. It, it's very visible and yeah, it starts yeah. organizing and being framed by architecture. Mm. And it's quite interesting because both Easterling and Timothy Morton deal with invisible things, Mm -hmm. things that we can't see. In Easterling's case, a lot of her writing addresses invisible infrastructures. Mm, A lot of the infrastructures that we don't see in everyday life but almost govern a lot of our rhythms and routines. And in Morton's work are things that are so big Mm. we can't really grasp them in everyday life. Mm. What do you think the advantage is, I think, then, in terms of expressing them through these formal explorations? Yeah, it's... uh, You're exactly right. Like, right back to honours, so much of what generated these objects that I create, um, so much of it was to do with, quite simply, like, what would the digital look like if it was physical? Yeah. Yeah. which is funny because it sounds really sort of overly simple now to kind of think about that. But I guess going back to, um, I guess that was sort of around 2011 or 12 when I was sort of looking at that stuff. It was a time when things were really teetering on, on um, yeah, people were still pretty in denial about the fact that all this time we're spending online is actually a legitimate form of presence in a, in a, in a space. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was really interesting to me, but to look at like, yeah, what might that look like as, as a physical thing? Like digital things um, are in a virtual space and have no materiality, but like what if, like this speculation, or what if we gave them a materiality? What might that be like? Um, and there were, there were a lot, there were, it was actually a guy that spoke at South by Southwest, James Bridal, that... Um, spoke about this idea of the fact that the digital is starting to erupt into a physical space through and had a materiality that was quite physical. Um, And then there was a panel discussion and it was just this really rich little moment that kind of happened that was the focus of what I was doing. Um, And so it was was just really nice. It felt very generative, kind of looking at making the digital stuff physical. Um, And so then coming across these other ideas, like you say, these other people that have ideas or are writing about these immaterial, invisible kind of things that are nevertheless incredibly significant. Um, like, I make sculpture and I enjoy the, the materiality of physical things. Um, I also think I am a person that really straddles that digital analog. Like, when I grew up, there wasn't computers and slowly there was. And so, it like, I literally have a foot in each kind of space. Like, digital stuff is very interesting to me but I'm not a digital native um, you know I grew up making kites and building cubby houses and digging holes and you know and I'm sure a lot of kids do but that's a thing that I kind of really value and you know now the encounters that I have with young people um, it's a lot of people are so heavily existing in virtual spaces mm-hmm. that I feel um, 
yeah, there's it's it's really interesting to me these spaces that I I don't really exist in very much, and that fascinates me. But I can only kind of reflect on who I am and what I am, and so um, the the physicality of kind of of trying to represent something that's an abstract or a big idea and trying to ground that in in a in a visual or a or a material kind of sense um, is super interesting to me, and and I think it is just a way for me of making sense of the world in a lot of ways as well, like. Um, it's sort of a way of making sense of the world where the act is a thing that has a logic, but at the end it doesn't actually give you much more of an idea about how the world works, which I think is also interesting. Yeah, I, th- I think making the unseen seen, and you talk about how present they are in our lives, but in reality if we tried to describe them, it's really difficult. Uh, there's often that example that in so many of our dreams, there's mm-hmm. never a mobile phone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for yeah. most of our everyday life, we're always handling these yeah. devices, but yeah, right. they're so hard for our subconscious to, yeah, yeah. to represent. Yeah, and I always think it's interesting, the choices that you make in representing the unseen and the seen. Mm-hmm. And a lot of your forms, they're very intentional, they're very clean, mm-hmm. they're almost inert in their simplicity, but there is this eruption in them, and often that starts to organise around these pixelated triangles. Mm-hmm. Um, you talk about that choice in using some of that formal language or the combinations of those formal languages as well. Yeah, the triangles really came out from... Um, they came from the idea that in in 3D modelling, these triangular um, units are, are usually what are used to describe sculptural form in 3D space. Um, and so a lot of it's to do with... Uh, being unapologetic about the materiality of digital things. And so as a starting point, you know, when I downloaded an STL file and took it into mesh software and zoomed in and zoomed in, you, you realise it's all these triangles that are kind of making this complex, you know, classical bust of Apollo or whatever. Um, so for me, again, like heaps, so much of what I do has a real directness to it, um, which... I, re- I remember initially being a bit self-conscious about how direct, you know, oh, 3D software uses triangles, so I'm going to make things out of triangles. But I think it's really interesting when you are decisive about something, even if it's quite simple, these things have a richness about them anyway that kind of starts unpacking and, and if you kind of um, let that sit, there's a lot to be sort of learnt and sort of um, generated out of something that might seem quite simple at the start. So the triangle sort of came from that space. Um, the vectory hyperobject sort of um, really long sort of bar-like lengths. Um, they actually originated in a work um, that I did at the Jam Factory where I made 100 boulders out of polystyrene that went range from about this big to quite tiny, and I numbered them all from one to a hundred, from the biggest to the smallest. Um, and it was in the glass cabinets on the side of the jam factory, uh, which are quite small, so th- they were kind of almost bursting out of that. Um, but I was—I don't even know why. I was thinking about how how could I put myself in the work. Like sometimes the work felt like some of my work felt a bit sterile and a bit maybe over-designed, and you know graphic designing and, I, and I'm, I mean this is not much of a move away from that but I decided what I'll put is a um, like a reference um, 
surveying pole that they use in archaeological sites that's striped every 10 centimetres, um, and I cut it to my height. And so uh, if this object that's made to kind of exist in an image and gave a reference in terms of the scale of the work, um, but also in some abstracted kind of way put me kind of into the work as well. So that's how that started. Um, then I ended up going to... Um, on a Splendor in the Grass, I made a work, which was an archaeological site where we dug up um, a sculpture that I buried a couple of weeks earlier. So the performance over the three and a half days of Splendor in the Grass was digging up this um, archaeological site, which will probably pop up there at some point. Everyone's wearing pink and looks dirty and it's all muddy and whatever. Um, and so I had two of these poles there and they were used in that work. Uh, soon after that, I went to Portugal and I started, I made 20 of these poles because I was interested in like, how might I document my movement in a space by placing these poles in different ways in a landscape? They kind of ended up being images where things were all sort of crossed over and whatever. Um, and then I thought, well, what if I sort of move out of that sort of image digital space into a physical? And so I actually constructed them as a cluster of sort of things. So that's where that kind of started and just kept evolving through and through. And and I think we've talked about this before, it, it kept recurring like over and over. It, it was weird how much I didn't really want to do that work anymore, that, that you use those kind of motifs. Um, but I think when I started using 3D software, it was also just a very easy, like to make a cubic or rectangular prism kind of form is like one of the simplest things you can do. And my knowledge of 3D software is incredibly limited. And so, um, again, just doing something that was really simple was kind of where that came from in some ways. Um, but I think I also find that really interesting because then the kind of, I guess, materiality or the, the nature of that medium seems becomes really evident in what it is you kind of make rather than trying to work really hard to make something look like something real. I sort of just rolled with um, what I was able to do quite simply in that suit. So. Well, I think what's really evident in that negotiation between the analogue and the digital is it's, it's really playful at the end of the day. You talk about an archaeological dig and, and what they're surfacing in that dig are like neon pink triangular forms. Um, I, it, I think it's really fun and it really, I think, forces people to reconsider the role that these other invisible things have in their life or they're just beneath the surface um, at the same time. Um, that playfulness, I think, also extends to the making of the work. Um, for those listening to this uh, in an audio format, it's a really grey, cloudy day in Adelaide. And, and often when it's this really grey, clear skies, I think it's a real Tom day um, because that's always like a key day for you to go and, and start making some work. And can you explain why that is? Yeah, so again, it goes back to just making life a lot easier because my skills are... Um limited in terms of using 3d software so when when the light is so flat and the sky you know you can probably overexpose in terms of taking a photo so the sky sort of maybe ends up being almost a kind of white color like right on that kind of edge um, these are the days that are best for me because the flat light means that when i'm rendering things um, the way i render light can be a lot simpler and i don't have to worry about complex shadows falling over complex surfaces so um, you know if, for the, I guess the example of, say, the work in the show, um, there's a couple that are sort of wedged in amongst buildings um, with a really nice blue sky, clear day. You can imagine those super complex forms, the way the light would 
fall and sort of fall over the architecture would probably require me to rebuild the whole scene in a virtual space and then place the object in and then render the light and then take that out and Photoshop it, which is just a lot of work, you know? And like, at the end of the day, it, it, it's the feedback loop thing. I don't, I don't want to spend two weeks meticulously rendering something. And also I just enjoy, there's something kind of weird about that sort of flat light as well, which is very interesting to me. Um, the ones in the show were all taken on the same day and it was a weird day in Adelaide where fog, a sea fog rolled in across the city. Um, and so the whole sky was like this softbox. It, had, it was just the strangest light ever. Um, and I woke up and I, was, I remember waking up and looking out the window and going, what's going on with the light? Like, it was really weird. And when I realised that it was this fog that was creating this really low cloud across um, and filtering the, the sun, I just jumped on my bike and with my camera and just went out and took tons of photos yeah it's good i think whatever makes makes it easier uh often reintroduces itself again and again in the practice yeah because it becomes quite seamless i I often find that quite funny as well that idea of the gray days bringing rise to these really bright neon uh, quite fast forms that start occupying these liminal spaces around the city at the same time uh i think it goes without saying that the contrast between the form and the building or the space itself is, is exaggerated by this grey day at the same time. Um, I think there's always a really interesting relationship between representation and power. And I really think that the way a lot of the forms organise in relation to the environment around them, in a really interesting way, goes back to the start where it engages the public in quite a peculiar way, where it forces them to see the world around them in a different way. They have these quite alien forms surfacing amongst key landmarks of the city. Um, Perhaps you could speak to that a little bit more. Yeah. um, I guess I've lived amongst the city and had a studio in the city for, like, years now. Um, And I've always been really conscious of um, the city as a grid. That's a huge influence on... uh, I actually believe it has a huge impact on the way people exist in Adelaide. The fact that we live in an incredibly planned, gridded city. Um, But more than that, it's flat, because you can think of other cities that are quite gridded that have a different feel to them. Um, Yeah, that's always something that's been really interesting to me. Like, what is is the the shape and the the kind of, I guess, the infrastructure of the city? How does that influence the way we think about the world? I mean, just as simply as if you live, like I've lived in some really bad houses that make me feel pretty shitty about being in the world, and then you exist in a in a place that has good light and and a, and, a, and a nice arrangement of rooms and airflow and these things, and that makes me feel better about the world. So, kind of expanding that out and thinking about um, a city in terms of that is is super interesting. And so, for me, that sort of that sort of I guess in like it's colonial. It's kind of a grid is something that suggests an extensiveness that continues on and on. Um, to interrupt that with these mm-hmm. things, it's the perfect kind of context to throw something in there that's kind of not that. Yeah, and, I think it really challenges that colonial infrastructure. Mm. And I think a lot of, you know, the high project works are as much about the fact that um, digital and the virtual world, of course, has a physical presence in terms of 
the, the physical infrastructure that's required to, to support that, whether it's, you know, um, like some of the high projects I've done have been named after um, that. Each undersea cable has a name, essentially, and you can go online and look it up, and they give them all these weird names. Some have, like, letters and numbers, but some are named after... Well, I don't even know what they're named after, to be honest, but they're just weird, like... Um, yeah, I don't, yeah, they have really weird names, but I've used that in naming things before just to sort of... Like, like I guess these interruptions of these big physical things in this kind of monotonous context is also about the fact that... Um, it sort of challenges the mythology around the immateriality of digital things that, you know, um, and that expands out to huge amounts of um, different political and kind of ecological sort of ideas around how extractive it is and how much, you know, us depending on that is kind of perpetuates that extractive sort of, um, yeah, approach to the world generally. Yeah. yeah, it's a nice line by the poet James Conway where he says that a rose in a cabbage patch is a weed. It is not our nature. We must change but our setting. Um, and I think I think it's... Um, as you said, you know, the, these broader forces at play, right? These broader politics as well and, and surfacing them and enforcing these conflicts with the city as one example. Um, I think it really speaks to the role that art can play, particularly art that is often viewed in a public context. Um, a lot of these broader forces that some of your work references, such as uh, climate change or COVID or things like that, they are measurable. You know, we can measure temperature change, we can measure deaths and infection rates of COVID. But I think the fact that it's represented in these conversations through art, I think, uh, changes how we start to talk about them. Totally, it yeah. Changes what they mean. I think that's that's the stuff that Timothy Morton talks about really well. Is these these hyper objects, whether it's yeah, COVID or climate change or um, the stock market, um, they're, they're incomprehensibly huge in terms of their extensiveness spatially and and maybe across time and, and whatever. But the reality is we also encounter them in, in a, on a really intimate kind of level. Like climate change, for instance, means that maybe in Adelaide we get a lot more dry days and I can go skateboarding more than what I used to. You know, like there's all these little things that affect us. COVID's a classic one where this thing that if you try and think about it as, as uh, in terms of how big it is and, you know, at the, at the point where the US was having, what, 700,000 cases a day, I'm like, I, I can't comprehend that. But then my partner comes down with COVID. It's the same thing. And I have to stay home for seven days. And... So, so it's really interesting to think about these things that are expansive but also very intimate. Um, and, I, and I think Timothy Morton also writes, art is actually a thing that does that as well. Like art, I guess, essentially is a hyper object as well that kind of we experience. You can go to the art gallery and experience an artwork um, and see it and not touch it. Anyway. But like... You know, in your own way, you can come with, with your world to that thing and encounter it and be um, influenced by what that thing is doing. Um, and that might be about these huge ideas and also relates back to an artist that has an idea about this is, you know, about where that's come from in terms of their context and what that's about for them. And, you know, it's the same kind of idea of expansiveness that also we encounter in a way that's super intimate, which I think is super powerful and one of these kind of, um, you know, art has this ability to do that, which is the kind of thing 
that we need in order to deal with so many of these issues that just seem insurmountable and just out of control and whatever. There is a way of approaching them and, and this giving them this kind of objectness is kind of a way of mm. tackling that, I guess. In neon blue and in neo pink, no less. Um, well, you can't touch the work, but you can ask the artist a question. So um, to start to conclude, we might open it up to the floor if anyone's got uh, a question they would like to ask Tom about his practice. Um, I'd like to know more about your colour palette, the, oh, yeah. the neon blue and pink. Yep, yeah. that's a good one. Um, I, f I feel like some people have a real natural affinity for colour and I don't. <laughs> and so, again, so much of my work comes down to making something achievable. Um, like I did a work in my final year at ACR where I decided, like I remember it was summer holidays before my final year and I'm like, what am I going to do? Like that pressure of like your final year, you're going to make, like what are you going to make? What's your work about? And I'm like, oh, I don't know. Like, and so I, I decided I was going to go to this pile of rocks that I knew and I'll, I'll, I'll collect a hundred rocks and each one will be a gram difference in weight. And that's what I decided that I would do without chipping any rocks off or changing them or... Um, and it was just one of those things where like setting out to do something that had a certain limit was a way of kind of dealing and creating a parameter, which for me makes creativity, it sort of bubbles up better like that, you know, like um, color is exactly the same. So by limiting for ages, I just did everything in blue. And part of it was that the blue, um, part of it was that the blue was so intense and kind of flat it became a material as well. Like most people ask me questions like, oh, like I say, you know, what do you do for a job? Oh, I'm, I'm an artist. And they're like, okay. Uh, and mostly people are like, well, fuck, I don't know what to do with that. Like, and so they say, oh, what medium do you, like what, what sort of art? And so I say sculpture. And then the next question is always, what medium do you use? Um, and I've worked out my medium is things you can get from Bunnings, pretty much. <laughs> like it's literally what I make my stuff out of. Mainly because I didn't have any money to make art. Like, you know, I'm, I'm not a person that kind of was brought up with a kind of uh, ability to think outside of the box financially. And so everything is within those kind of limits. So I came across this paint and it was mind-blowing and it was pretty cheap because it was just a sign-writing paint um, originally. And so I was like, okay, then let's just do that. It just took the complexity out of um, things. And then to kind of also be aware of people like each client that spent a huge amount of their career just obsessed with one colour and this blue is very close to that blue as well. I was like, oh, if he can do it, like, that's pretty arty. That blue is pretty arty. So, like, it kind of, it, it also, you know, ends up sort of artifying and kind of distracts from the fact that the wood I bought is from Bunnings, you know. Like, um, the other thing you might have seen is um, there's some statues in here that, um, like a, a bust of Apollo, that's a garden statue from the end of McGill Road. And I just paint it blue. And then someone thinks that that's like heaps more arty than, do you know, what, do you know, like, I know that's kind of taking the piss a little bit, yeah. but, um, but there's something interesting about that. But I think definitely the materiality, it's a blue that sort of shocks you into reevaluating something, um, which is interesting. The pink came out of um, the Splendor in the Grass work. So 
with Splendor in the Grass being an archaeological dig, I wanted it to be a kind of high-vis scenario, um, but I didn't want all the baggage that like fluorescent orange, say, or yellow sort of comes with. Um, and so I guess the, the pink was kind of a queering of that like hyper-masculine sort of space, but I still wanted it to appeal as something that was kind of about a seriousness of work and like, um, yeah, so that's where that started. And then again, I was like, cool, let's just run with that. I think at one point I was thinking maybe I would use blue for public art and pink for things that went in galleries. Like, just as a, you know. And more recently I've got a little bit more brave and there's some yellow. The yellow is uh, refers probably a bit to um, that, uh, to Melbourne actually, the big yellow sculpture by Acker. Now I'm not going to remember the guy's name. Anyway, it was quite controversial and got moved around a lot. It was interesting just that the, the idea that a sculptural work, everybody had an opinion, it was a big problem and you had to move it and put it somewhere else and like, like everyone had an opinion on that. And I just now I see that yellow sort of really permeating Melbourne in a big way and even some of those forms. Um, I even remember going to Melbourne one time and taking photos of everything that was yellow. That was ages ago. Um, but, yeah, so different things come in for often kind of practical or obscure reasons like there's definitely always a reason i very rarely just go oh i might chuck a bit of whatever so there's a lighter pink that i've been using more recently um and that comes from this weird building in um berlin that i came across that i bought a book on that was an incredible book and so that had the blue in there already with this soft pink that was kind of an insulation color for the outside of one of the sections of it and so I sort of lifted that off for a couple of works. This is the graphic designer coming to play good complementary contrasting totally. colors at the same time. Yeah. I want to see a hyper object at Bunnings. That's what I want to see. Yeah, that'd be pretty um, good. Are there any more questions for Tom? <laughs> um, I just wanted to kind of, I guess, comment and question around. So first to comment on the, um, the very obsessive nature of the patterns and the organization mm. in your work and like this, this evidence. Um, need to, you know, kind of reorganise an environment in a way that you understand where these linear um, structures um, and I guess um, how that plays into your idea about about humans and, and, and how we kind of understand the world and what your relationship to organic material is then, mm. like with this sort of um, yeah, having to reconstruct mm. these forms, these, these, um, these very human-made um, forms around organic objects mm. and yeah um, I think again that's I've always found that my work can steer towards being incredibly designy um, and often that's been the criticism of, of people of my work is that it's so kind of nicely finished and um, precise and, and it has all those aspects um, Introducing these organic forms is a way of kind of disrupting that. And to be honest, I wish, I wish my work was looser and less designed. That's what I'm always trying to battle. But it's that thing that when you sort of enter into a process or a, you've got an exhibition or like, like we all revert back to, to doing things that we know and kind of playing it safe and whatever. And so by introducing organic elements, whether it's like there's one that has like a stick, there's ones that are broken concrete, um, rocks, all these kind of things. It's a way of, yeah, it's another way of disrupting that order where the agency 
I kind of outsource to another thing to kind of then see how that rearranges that kind of default of mine to be structured and precise and, and regular and, and those kind of things. Um, yeah, and I guess that's a bit of a design thing as well, this whole tension between like, like most things engage through a tension between whether it's regular and, you know, irregular or synthetic and organic or um, I think that's a nice way in to work and I think sometimes work that people find less engaging of mine might just feel a bit sterile. Um, but then often I, I think that's about the relationship between a person as an organic thing and, and something that's less, or the space, or, um, or, or maybe it has, doesn't exist in a context that is going to exist in yet, or, you know, like, um, I always kind of welcome that. And it's funny because when I have my little collections of, say, um, on Instagram where I, where I save or tag things I like, if you look at what they are, they're all loose, messy. Like, there's this part of me that's just like, I just want to be more like that. You know, like, yeah. Like, people like Cy Twombly, you know, they're just like, and make these just, um, like, mind-blowing things. Like, I dream of, you know, being able to, like, I mean, even like Trookmates work where I'm just like, how do you just make that, though? Oh, I couldn't deal with it, you know? Like, like I just want to pull it back and pull it back. And so, um, by kind of, introducing yeah different agencies of, of other things that are kind of a bit more chaotic, chaotic or organic yeah that's that's what that's about so um i think that's all the time we have for today's feedback loop um <laughs> would you please thank tom for joining us today